Today's scripture reading comes from Psalms 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope everyone had a very happy and wonderful Thanksgiving this past week, and thanks, and I'm grateful for you all joining us this morning uh, for worship. So before we continue on hearing a message from God's word today, uh, I just want to invite you to join me in prayer, to invite God to be, be working through me and among us this morning. So please pray with me. Dear Lord, I just thank you for Yeah, just the the chance we have to gather together with other believers and to worship you, to sing and and, and praise you for who you are, and to just reflect on your coming to earth as as a baby 2,000 years ago and your coming again that will happen in the future. And God, as as I speak today, may you speak powerfully through me. Uh, May my words be effective as I try to communicate your will to, to these people. And God, be, be active inside each and every one of us, uh, guiding us and shaping us uh, to hear your word and what you'd have to say to us today, and may we be changed as a result. Uh, Lord, we love you, and it's your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So to start off, I'd like to tell you about my favorite movie of all time. It's called Bahubali. It is, uh, if you haven't heard of it, it is the highest grossing Indian movie of all time. It came out in 20, 2015, um, it's a non-stop, like action, over-the-top, intense epic. It's like if Lord of the Rings was a Bollywood musical, but then times that by 10. Like, it is just insane. Um, no, seriously, if you have yet, haven't seen this movie, it's on Netflix, and so now you know your plans for the rest of the day, if you didn't have plans already. Um, but just be warned, it's two three-hour movies, so it's going to take a lot of time to watch through it, but it does not feel that long. It is, it is such a great movie. It's about Bahubali, who is, um, a, as a baby, he is saved uh, from his kingdom because his evil uncle, uh, Bahaladeva, has, has usurped the throne from Bahubali's father and is trying to kill baby, baby Bahubali. But Bahubali is, is rescued, and he is raised in a little village at the bottom of this like impossibly tall waterfall, not knowing that he's actually the king of this kingdom. And then as he comes of age, he, he scales this like thousand mile tall waterfall, returns to his kingdom, and takes back the rightful throne that is rightfully his. And I could, you know, go on for the next 45 minutes talking about this movie. That's how much I love it. But I bring it up just because I think one of the reasons why this movie was so successful 
in India and actually across the world as well is that it taps in to a universal human desire that we all have to see the rightful king, to see a right king ascend the throne, to see the right person in charge, and for them to bring all of us into flourishing and, and to bring justice. Right? Every culture across the globe and, and across history has stories like these. Whether it be uh, the Lion King or Lord of the Rings, we all tell these stories about a rightful king coming back to power and bringing flourishing and justice for everyone. Even in our country, even though we live in a democracy and haven't had a king for a few hundred years, we still love these stories. And more than that, we often treat our, our celebrities, right, our professional athletes, our actors, even our favorite politicians as though they were royalty and are obsessed with them and, 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 and the hope that they might give us happiness or might give us justice or flourishing. You see, all of us desire a right ruler to establish justice. But in the end, we are often left disappointed by our human options, by the human leaders that we have to follow. And that leaves us with uncertainty about whom we are to trust. That's what we're going to be exploring in our series through Advent called The Promised King. You see, Advent is the season of the year, like Leah said earlier, that's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas where we take time in the church calendar historically to slow down and to think and reflect upon Jesus' first coming to earth as a baby, but also look forward to his next coming to earth as a king to establish his kingdom in, in its fullness when he comes again. And so in, in our series, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be going through different psalms from the Old Testament that express Israel's hope for a righteous king and see how Jesus fulfills those promises as the promised king, both in his first coming as a baby 2,000 years ago and also the hope that we have for a second coming in the future. And Psalms is, is a great place to do that because uh, one of the most common themes through the book of the Psalms is kingship. So many of these Psalms are written either about Israel's king, for Israel's king, or even by Israel's king, David. But it's interesting though, because when the book of Psalms was first put together and, and put into a hymn book for the Jewish people, there was no king in Israel. The Israelites had been taken off into exile, away from their land, and then even when they returned to their land uh, 70 years later, they, they had foreign rulers and foreign oppressors who were in charge over them. And so as they're praying these songs about their king, they are, they are singing, praying, and reading these songs in the hope that one day God would return and, 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 and give them uh, an, an established a just kingdom. And so as you turn now to Psalm 2, and then we begin, I just want to give you a little backstory and a little context for Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as you jump into this series. So this Psalm, Psalm 2, along with Psalm 1, they function as a two-part introduction to the book of Psalms, where Psalm 1 introduces the theme of meditating on God's word, seeking to follow him instead of following the way of the wicked. And then Psalm 2 introduces this theme of kingship, about the righteous king that is promised to rule over God's people. And so it sets up this, this tension as you read through the whole book of the Psalms, these two themes in mind, right? The righteous person following God's law and the righteous king establishing justice. And you're meant as the reader to see those coming together, that we're meant to look as the Jewish people were, look for a righteous person, a righteous man who would follow God's law, who would become the righteous king for God's people and establish justice. And so Psalm 2, as we're going to see here in a little bit, has four parts. There's four three-verse stanzas that we're going to go through one at a time through this poem. 
And we will see in these four parts that there's first a conspiracy that is listed there. Then we hear about God's response. We hear God's decree. And then lastly, we hear God's invitation to us in, in this poem. And as we go through those four stanzas, we're going to see that the psalm has for us um, a truth from God and an invitation for us as well. So first, let's see the conspiracy in this first stanza. So it begins by saying in verse one, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. So this passage opens with a picture of people, you know, the nations of the whole earth being opposed to God. And they're raging, they're plotting, conspiring to overthrow him. But the psalmist tells us that their plotting, conspiring is ultimately in vain. It's not going to be successful. Now, this word translated plot in English, that they are plotting together, it's actually the same word from Psalm 1 that is translated as meditate. That word, uh, it, it commonly means to murmur or to growl. It's like if you're at a stadium and you kind of can hear a conversations around you going, you hear a murmuring sound. You can't really pick out, but you can hear people talking. That's kind of the, what, 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 the, what, what the word is, is, is pointing to. Because the same word that's translated as meditate, as in to like chew on an idea, to like read something and just mutter those words over and over again under your breath as you're reading it. But here, as, as the second part of the introduction, this, the psalmist takes the theme from the first psalm of the righteous person meditating on God's word day and night. But instead here, the nations of the world are meditating or plotting. They're meditating on their conspiracy of how they're planning to overthrow God and his chosen king. Verse two narrows down from just not j the entire nations and peoples of the earth, but specifies who specifically is plotting against God. And it tells us that's the kings, the kings of the earth. These are rulers, people with power and authority, and, and they're huddling together, conspiring together, preparing for a coup against the Lord, but not just God, but also his anointed, his chosen king. That word anointed, it's the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning God's chosen one, the one who God has chosen to be the king and ruler over his people. And in the next verse, we hear what these kings want. They want to throw off what they perceive to be bondage, which is interesting because they're kings and rulers, Right? They're not oppressed people who have someone else over in charge over them. They're kings, they're rulers, they have authority. Now, in the original context of this psalm, if, if, if David or Solomon were ruling, these kings perhaps could be seen as some of these other kings of the nations around Israel that were, at that time, that short period of time, were under the power of Israel and were vassals to them and paid tribute to David and Solomon. But throughout the history of God's people, ever since Solomon, there were no kings of the nations that were under the control of God's people. So as this psalm is put into the psalm book, and as it's prayed and sung and read for hundreds of years by Jews and then by the earliest followers of Jesus, there are no foreign kings who are under Israel's control. And that seems to suggest to me that actually what's going on here is that these kings are, con are complaining about this bondage and, and, and being um, ensnared by God, but actually they're not really wanting freedom. They're wanting a license to use that freedom to oppress God's people. That's how the earliest Jews and Jesus followers read this. 
that actually this word for cord can refer to a harness or a yoke that you place over an animal. So whoever owns the animal will place this cord over an ox or horse to get that ox or horse to do what, what they would want that the horse to do. And so in this way, these human kings, they do not want to be under God's righteous rule as the proper king and creator over the world. And so they're rebelling and planning to commit treason against God, the true king. And so they're plotting uh, destruction and ruin for God's people that are under God's rule. And we still see this truth today, that human beings still rebel against God as their rightful king, and they seek to remove any moral constraints that God has placed over us. And far from experiencing joy and fulfillment when we remove these moral constraints that God has uh, put into the fabric of the universe, our pursuit of freedom, it produces pain and suffering for ourselves. It produces harm and uncertainty and chaos for ourselves and others as well, just like the kings of the earth in this passage. So how does God respond to this conspiracy to overthrow his rightful rule? That's where in the next, in the next verse, in verse four, we hear God's response to their conspiracy. The psalm continues, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, God sees these plans that these kings have to overthrow him and, and, and to overthrow his chosen king. And his response is really surprising to me if you, if you read this initially. He laughs. He hears their plots to, to thwart his will in the world and he just laughs. He just mocks them. Because you know, right, right, this king's conspiracy against God, to rebel against him, it's not taken by God as a serious threat. So he can chuckle at it. It's not, they're not gonna be successful in their plot to overthrow him. And since this is true, we also don't need to fear the schemes and plots of the kings of the earth because we know that our heavenly father, our king in heaven, is laughing at their plots to destroy us. You know, as a kid, uh, my family would often fly back and forth between America and Africa. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid and we'd fly over the Atlantic back and forth often as a kid. And I was deeply, deeply afraid that one day our plane would crash into the ocean and we'd just like sink underwater. And I was like, we're so afraid of this. And so every time we got on a plane, I would like pull out those like, even when I was six years old, I'd pull out like this little pamphlet safety card and read through it to kind of see what would happen in case we'd crash in water. And I'd always look around the plane to see, is this plane gonna float if we land in water? Or is it just gonna sink right into the water? And I can kind of like chuckle and laugh about this now as an adult. But as a kid, that really, really scared me. The thought that crash, the plane crashing in water would completely sink. But today, right, it's, it's not seen as a serious threat to me because I understand that it's very, very rare and very, very unlikely for a plane to crash in open water. In a similar way, God can laugh at the king's conspiracies and see no need to be afraid of them because it's actually not a very serious threat to him. Now, God laughing and mocking the conspiracy of these human kings, it can feel a little cold and distant to think about God laughing at something that would make us afraid. But actually, that's really good news for us who follow him because the truth that, that God wants us to take in this passage is this, that we don't need to fear what God laughs at. That there are things, there's a certain sense that the things that make us afraid, that bring us uncertainty and chaos are things that, don't, that we don't need to be afraid of because God sees them 
And ultimately, he's laughing at them. They're not taken as a serious threat to him. Because from his perspective, right, he knows that whatever human beings plot against him, it won't ultimately be successful. In the end, God will get his way. And he already knows the ultimate outcome. It's like human kings are down here playing checkers, but God is up there playing chess. He's on a whole nother level, being able to outwit and outsmart what human beings try to do to thwart God's will. And we can take comfort knowing that's true and that God's ultimately in control, despite what our circumstances might seem to show to us today. Now, the mocking laughter is is not God's only response to these kings, but actually later on that verse, it tells us that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Now, that, that feels really uncomfortable for us as modern readers to hear about God being wrathful or being angry at these human kings. But it's important to recognize that God's wrath in this context is an appropriate response to human treason, to people rebelling against God as the rightful king of the world, him getting angry at these human kings seeking to throw off moral constraint to oppress others. His anger is a right response, an appropriate response to that. Now, now the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, he describes how God's wrath is an appropriate response an appropriate expression of his holy love in his book, Free of Charge. He's a very influential theologian. He teaches at Yale Divinity School. And I just want to quote um, what he writes in his book at length here. He says that, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person, every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia. The region from which I come, according to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My, my villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination and I cannot imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? by doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against the God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And Wolf goes on to explain how a belief in God's wrath, that God will one day punish evil and bring about justice, that that belief is the only thing that can motivate human beings to practice nonviolence, to love their enemies, and to practice true forgiveness without kind of excusing evil for, for, for evil. That, that's the old, that believing in a God that, that, that is wrathful and does judge does lead us humans to forgive others and to trust in God's vengeance and not seek to achieve that on our own. So God then, then in verse 7, right, he exp- or verse 6, God declares his plan to execute this justice, to bring about his, his, his right wrath against these kings. He tells them that I have set my king on Zion. See, God's king is on his throne. No matter what it may seem that these uh, Gentile kings and these kings of the world are seeking to plot against God's people, God's true king is on the throne. 
And in the original context, this could have referred to right, David or one of David's descendants being on the throne of Israel. But like I said earlier, as, as the Jewish people are reading and praying this, this psalm for hundreds and hundreds of years, there is no king on the throne. They are under the control of, of the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. Over and over again, different empires control God's people. And so as they read and pray this psalm and read that God has set his, his, his son, his, his king on Zion, they're praying that in the hope that one day God would establish his king again. They're, they're holding on to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that he would have a future descendant who would sit on his throne forever. And that descendant would be called a son of God as we, as we get into this next section. And they would read this as a declaration of God's sure plan to establish this future king's kingdom. And it would be a kingdom that would never end. Now in the next stanza, in verse 7, we hear of God's decree to that future son of, of how he will establish his kingdom. So now the, the narrator is, is clearly here in this section. This is the son speaking. This is, this is the righteous king speaking what God has said to him. So in verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right, so we hear God's anointed king speak and quote the decree that God has given to him, calling him his son and promising that he is gonna be someone who's gonna administer justice on this earth. God declares that this king is his son and that's important for two reasons. First, the... Uh, God's son is someone who is able to, to, to reflect and demonstrate God's character. Uh, we have a saying, right, even in English, like, like father, like son. Sons are supposed to be like their father. And so the ideal king that would reign uh, over God's people, Israel, was someone who was like God. Just like David, the ideal king, was called a man after God's own heart. This future king is God's son and that he is like God and has his character and his values. And also, uh, second, this, this, this son represents God as God's son. In that culture especially, sons represent their fathers and, and continue their father's work in the world. And so in a similar way, for God's people, the righteous king is supposed to represent God to them and, and in how he provides, protects, guides, and leads God's people. He is functioning as God for them, as someone they can see and tangibly experience and to lead them the way God would want, want them to live. Not only this, but also he, he executes justice as God's representative. That's what, that's what the Lord says to the son. And, and, and he's not only bringing justice for Israel, but actually brings justice for the entire world. It says the ends of the earth will be under his control. He will break the rebellious kings with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like pottery. Have you ever dropped like a mug or a, a, or a ceramic plate by accident and just shatters into pieces? Like you didn't even try to break it, but all of a sudden it's, it's all across the floor and you have to clean it up. That's the image here, that, that the kings of the world, that their plots to rebel against God and oppress his people, for God to thwart them, it's like breaking a, pot, a piece of pottery. It's that easy. It's that fragile for him. But notice here the, the, the tenses and the promises that God gives to this king. He says, I will make, 
right? It's in the future tense. You shall break. These are future tenses of what will happen in the future. But God has already said earlier, I have set my king in Zion, right? Past tense. And so in this psalm, there's this tension between the already and the not yet. What God has already done in establishing his king and is making that sure plan, but also the promise of something that's going to happen in the future, and we're caught often between the two. And that's how Jews prayed this song for hundreds and hundreds of years, right up until God's true son and promised king came into the world. So just as the kings of the earth plot against the Lord, and as he sits in heaven and laughs at them, while he installs his king on Zion, the same thing happened when Jesus was born. Now in in Luke 2, uh, verse 1, we read this passage every year at Christmas. But it says this, that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now we read this every year at Christmas, but notice here, right, how the most powerful man on the earth is making his plans. Right? Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the, of the, of the Roman, world, Roman Empire, which had conquered the known world at that time, he wants to count all the people in his empire to see how many people he has control over, maybe to, to make taxing more efficient, to accumulate more wealth and power for himself. And as this emperor, Augustus, there are inscriptions found, about, found of him throughout the ancient world that I give him titles like God, son of God, savior, the one who brings peace, justice, righteousness, the one who has good news that needs to be told about him. This person, right, he sounds a lot like the earthly kings of Psalm 2, having his plot to accumulate more power and wealth for himself. But all the while, God is up in, head, God is up in heaven laughing. Because as powerful and as important as he was, the only reason most of us know his name, unless you're someone who studies the Roman Empire and relays into things like that, but most of us, the only reason we know about Caesar Augustus is that he's the king who's mentioned in the beginning of one of our Advent readings, that we read about him only because of of a Jewish peasant named Jesus that was born in an obscure part of his empire. And because of that, that's the only reason we know about Caesar today. And he even plays a part unknowingly in bringing about God's anointed and bringing that plan to fulfillment. Because as he's consolidating his power and scheming and making this plan to count all his people in his empire, in doing that, he causes Joseph and Mary to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem and so fulfill a promise and fulfill a prophecy that God had given his people about where his chosen king would come from. It says in Micah 5, verse 2, this, this, this prophecy about God's anointed, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And so even as, as Caesar is scheming, he ends up by his plot to accumulate more wealth for himself. He brings Jesus' parents into Bethlehem. So Jesus is born in a way that fulfills God's prophecies. 
So the kings of the earth conspire in rage, but instead God's, God laughs. Because no matter how hard they try, in, his, in the end, God gets his way. He establishes his anointed king in Zion. Jesus called the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And he is not just, Jesus is not just God's son in that he is called God's son, but actually he is the eternal son of God who has always existed with God the Father and is now entering into world and onto our world, into human existence to reveal God to us, his very character and his values to us. And though he appears in his first coming as a little helpless baby, he starts and he inaugurates and begins God's kingdom rule on this earth through his earthly ministry. And we know that he's going to return again in the future to bring that kingdom to its uh, fulfillment, to bring it to its completion and, and have it spread out over the entire earth. And since that is true, since God gets his way, right, no matter what the human schemes may be, and, and, and those human schemes that we can so easily be caught up in or so easily become afraid of, what should we do in response to that truth? We get to God's invitation to us in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God readdresses the kings and rulers from verse 2. He tells them, wise up, you've been warned. Serve the Lord with fear. In this fear, it's not like being terrified or like afraid of God, but actually it's recognizing God's awesome might for what it is and responding to that appropriately, responding to it with reverence and responding to it in out of devotion that makes you want to worship and praise God. And, and ultimately, right, they're being invited. Although this sounds like a warning, they're being invited to, to do the right thing before it's too late. Because they're called to rejoice in the Son, which the only way that's possible, the only way that God can invite them to rejoice is because of grace that he has for them. And he is telling them that if you turn your, and change your ways and come under me, that there's grace and forgiveness for you. And you can actually rejoice in that renewed relationship that you have with me. But not only rejoice, it's also rejoice and tremble. We were saying about that earlier, that, that, that our rejoicing in God and his goodness, even in doing so, we never lose sight of the fact that God is God and we are not. not. And he is the creator of the world and, and as such deserves our, our allegiance and deserves our praise. And that fear and reverence remains with us even while we are rejoicing and we're excited to praise him, we still have that same trembling, recognizing God for who he is as we worship him. And they are also called to kiss the son. Now, now don't, get this, don't misinterpret this. This is not a symbol of intimacy here. This is actually a symbol of submission in that culture. So this right here, it's called the black obelisk of Shalmaneser II. And this is an image right here of the person kneeling is King Jehu of Israel. Now, this is really interesting. This is one of the earliest visual representations we have of someone who's in the Bible as a historical figure. So King Jehu from the Bible is kneeling before King Shalmaneser of the Assyrians and is kissing his feet, as you can see her here. And this um, obelisk is commemorating when King Jehu was defeated in battle and how he had to come to Shalmaneser and, uh, and kiss his feet and pay homage to him and submit to him and give him tribute as a king who is now under the control of the Assyrian king. 
And this is the image that was in that context of what it meant to kiss the son. But notice here, King Jehu is not kissing God's son. He's not kissing uh, the, the righteous king that God had set in place in Zion, but instead he is turning to submit to a foreign leader, which makes sense in his context. Assyria is the most powerful empire in the world at that time. But he is choosing out of fear to submit to someone other than God. And that rather than the posture that Psalm 2 asks of us before God, to kiss the son, to give our allegiance to him and submit to him as the one who can bring us safety in this world. Now we see the same posture reflected in when, when Jesus came to earth, right? Every Christmas, we have those nativity scenes that display the, the shepherds coming to worship Jesus. They display rulers and kings, the magi from the east coming a far distance to worship Jesus and give him gifts. And that's the same posture that God invites us into as well today, to submit to and worship the son and find refuge in him. And these kings in Psalm 2 are told to do that lest his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, this means something like his fuse is running short. It doesn't, it's not saying that God has a short temper and at any moment he could blow up and, 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 and go over the top. But what it's saying is that God has been patient for a long time with these kings but his patience is running thin. And so he's giving them a last chance to turn to him before they meet the, nat the natural consequences of the rebellion against him. But ultimately, they're told, and we're told as well, that everyone who takes refuge in God's son, God's true king, is blessed. And that's God's invitation to us as well today. His invitation is for us to take refuge in him. So whatever may cause you fear, know that God laughs at it. No earthly king's plot can stand against him. He is able to keep us safe no matter what, God, what human kings may be plotting and scheming. So what does it mean to take refuge in God according to this passage? Remember how I said earlier how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are like a two-part introduction to this book. And it's interesting that Psalm 1 and 2, they're book-ended by these blessings. Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the one who uh, does not follow the ways of the wicked, but delights in God's law day and night and meditates on it. And then Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all those who take refuge in God's king. And so they're meant to be read in light of each other. That taking refuge in, God, in God's king and in, in God is meditating on God's law day and night and, 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 and spending time and abiding in that as a thing that gives us safety and leads us into the life God has for us. And this is even what, what God's chosen king does in Psalm 2. If you notice in verse 7 through 9, the Lord's cho chosen king, as he's seen these people, these kings of the earth, plot and scheme against him, what does he do in face of that uncertainty and chaos? He goes back to what God has declared to him, God's righteous decree that he is going to make him the king of the whole earth. And he repeats that to himself and treasures and clings on to that promise. In a similar way, we also should do the same. When we face fears and uncertainty of life, we should take refuge in God and in his anointed by treasuring his word and his promises and clinging on to those and living out of them. And so today, as I, as I close our time this morning, I want to ask you, what are you looking to for refuge that won't ultimately protect you? Right? Just like uh, King Jehu went to, to the King Shalmaneser and kissed his feet and sought refuge in him, a foreign king, because of his fear and uncertainty, all of us today too, 
There are things in our lives that we seek to and go towards to find safety and security that ultimately won't fulfill us or satisfy us. So I encourage you, write this down. What, what are you looking to for comfort and safety? If you're taking notes, just write it down for yourself today. Is it your job? Like how well you're doing in your career? Is it your finances? How much money you have or don't have in your bank account? Is it your family that you're looking to as refuge? Your friendships or reputation before other people? Is it your religious activity? How you even are showing up to church on a holiday weekend? Is it pleasures that numb your pain and distract you from, from suffering or distract you from fears that you have in this world? What about as we enter this busy holiday season with, with tons of, of social engagements and pressures to have the perfect family gatherings this time of year? As we enter this crazy season, what are you looking to for refuge that won't ultimately protect you? And what would it look like instead to look to God and his son and his word as your refuge during this time? What would it look like this week to take refuge in him? Because we don't need to fear what God laughs at. And so let's take refuge in him. Let's pray to close. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are ultimately in control, that it's good news for us that we are not our own, that you are our God and you have control over us in this world. And may we rest in that truth in spite of the other things that cause us uh, anxiety and stress, maybe we rely on you as our savior to guide us and lead us, God, to take refuge in you and find our safety and comfort in you alone. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray.